Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. This is an extended 41-minute version of an interview that aired on Bookwaves on KPFA on January 14, 2016. My guests are Blair Jackson and David Gans, who have a book this is All a Dream We Dreamed, an oral history of the Grateful Dead. Blair Jackson, for several years, worked on a fanzine called The Golden Road. He has three books about the Grateful Dead, including Garcia and American Life and Grateful Dead, The Music Never Stopped. David Gans also has three books on the dead, Conversations with the Dead, two others. There's also a Talking Heads book. He is a guitarist producer, host of Sirius XM, Tales from the Golden Road, founder and host of the Grateful Dead Hour syndicated and on KPFA in Berkeley, co-host Dead to the World and hosts a yearly fun drive for the station. You've both written about the Grateful Dead. You've both been involved in the world of the Grateful Dead for a long time. What prompted you to write an oral history who started it? Which of you? They're pointing at each other. So let me ask Blair Jackson, from your perspective. From my perspective, David started it. <laughs> We're both fans of the oral history as an art form. I mean, I, I still remember vividly the first great oral history I read, which was Edie, Edie which was about Edie Sedgwick of the Warhol scene. I thought that was a really magnificent uh, book. And there have been several other good rock books, including a great one about Jerry Garcia by Bob Greenfield called Dark Star. I think both of us have sort of toyed with the idea for years of trying to do a Grateful Dead one because it's a scene that really lends itself to an oral history because there's so many sort of articulate, smart people. So many people have different viewpoints on things. And it's, so it was a, it's a good way to sort of do a mashup of, of Grateful Dead history without sort of doing the writerly way of doing it, which we've both also done. David Gans? Well, it's also a form following the function of the Grateful Dead. You know, the Grateful Dead, despite the fact that Jerry Garcia was canonized and very much was the sort of tent pole of this immense culture, it was a collective musical endeavor and a very much a tribal and collective operation for most of its lifetime, too. So it made sense to allow everybody to tell a piece of the story and come up with a narrative that's greater than the sum of its parts. You decide you're going to work on this together at some point because you're talking to each other. At that point, you have to kind of look because we have multiple books. We have huge numbers of interviews that each of you have done separately. We have all of the research that both of you did for your individual books, plus probably a lot of other material as well. Oh, yeah. How do you begin the assembly of this? How do you do that? David Gans. 
We used modern technology. I created a Google Docs world for us, and we put, opened up a little bin for each year, and then we worked separately for uh, close to a year, each of us going through our resources and dropping stories and little bits of things into each bucket by year. We did make a couple of sort of rules as we went. Since both of us had published so much before, we made it a rule that we wanted to use little or no material that we had already put in other books. And that sort of put a lot of stuff off limits, particularly for me since I had done a book of complete interview transcripts called Conversations with the Dead. So that took a lot of stuff off the table. But fortunately, over the last 20 years, I've done a tremendous amount of interviewing for my radio shows. And so I had a huge amount of material available there. And we went out and got lots of new material as well, both of us jointly and separately interviewed people specifically for this book project. And we also widened the scope a little bit. I talked to a lot of musicians about Grateful Dead music because, again, the audience created this culture almost as much as the band did. And so we wanted to have the perspective of people who weren't in the band on stage but were very much a part of the experience. And so I got several musicians who are profoundly conversant in this music to address it, and they appear in the book as well. So after several months of doing stuff separately, we had a conference and sort of created the chapter structure, you know, what the basic beats are of the story, and started arranging material. We kind of divvied up the work and arranged the material into the chapters and then started the business of refining it and really sequencing it into a narrative, and we both pounded on these things at will. The fact that we live a few hundred feet apart made it easier to collaborate, too. You know, we could we could sit right. down together when we needed to. But mostly what we did was work separately until the very last phase of it because we've been friends and colleagues for almost 40 years. I don't mind telling you that Blair's writing style influenced my own in the early days of our friendship because he was my editor at BAM magazine and I liked the way he wrote. So there's a bit of him in my writing. So we didn't really have any compatibility Stay issues. Stay out of my writing. We didn't really have any compatibility issues because we have very similar writing voices. What did you do about transcription? How did you transcribe? <laughs> we Paid hired people. a transcriber. Transcribers who mostly did a pretty good job. I mean, occasionally we'd get one who would spell every name wrong, you know. Remember... Remember one coming back with Kreutzmann spelled yeah. like four different ways. <laughs> That's a tough one, though. But in general, uh, yeah, it was worth it, I would say, especially because we both had so much other stuff to do. And then when it comes back, it also sort of lets you view the whole thing as a almost a new entity in a sense. And the way we worked was, like he said, he, we got a structure together. And so we could just, if all of a sudden here's a story about Woodstock, you, all right, we know that that's going to go in 1969. And so you just sort of drop that and you just keep dropping things in, dropping things in. And we, I mean, I think we were being discriminated all, all the way along, but we knew that we were going to have to tailor it and cut it a lot towards the end, which we did. How long was the uh, original manuscript? Well, we turned in 220,000 words. And I don't even remember if there was a specific word Word count in the contract that I thought we it said under a hundred thousand. <laughs> I, I, all I remember is that when we sent it in, our agent Sandy Choron said, "Oh, this is great." I said, "You read it already?" She said, "Oh, I don't read manuscripts; I just weigh them." <laughs> but our, our editor Bob Miller, I, I should tell you that this book benefited tremendously from our relationship with Bob Miller. He was my first editor. On playing in the band in, in 1984, he was a junior editor at St. Martin's Press then. 
and we've remained friends ever since. And he went on to a tremendously successful career in publishing. He was the founding editor, I believe, of Hyperion and ran Hyperion for a very long time. And so at the moment when this book became a possibility, he had just landed at Flatiron Books, his own imprint under Macmillan, and his first two titles were Oprah Winfrey anthologies, which meant that he had a successful venture out of the box, right? So, in fact, the the title of the book was Bob's uh, Doing. And so we we had just a, a really wonderful and easy relationship with the publisher, and the packaging of the book was done by our agent, Sandy Choran, and her husband and partner, Harry. So it was really a, a family thing all the way through. We never had that sense of of being at odds with our publisher or having the project taken away from us and handed off to other people to finish. It was us. I'm going to ask a question that you've been asked every single time. So a quick summary would be in order, which is how did you become a deadhead? David Gans, your first concert was on March 5th, 1972. What happened that day? Well, my roommate and songwriting partner had been bugging me for months to go check out The Dead, and I was skeptical about it because I was into a different kind of music and thought I knew what The Dead were like. It's a pretty classic story, a heroic dose of LSD, uh, a knowledgeable guide delivering me to the show, and the music did the rest and worked its way into my mind such that the next time they came to town, I went to four shows in five days. And uh, Blair? My first show was uh, March 20th, or 21st, I'm always forgetting now, 1970 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. I was not on any drugs at all. I went with a high school buddy. I had gotten into the Grateful Dead really at the end of 1969 with Live Dead. That was the key to me. And I went there and uh, had a magnificent time. There were naked girls dancing, literally, in the in the audience and on stage for moments. And uh Pigpen blew my mind. I'd heard things I'd never heard, and I just kept going back. I mean, I, I saw them uh, six more times that year, seven times the next year, and actually those were two of my best years for a long time. <laughs> Mine was at Woodstock, and they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. But I did see them at Harper College in 1970, May 1970, and they were it was a three, it felt like a 10 hour concert, but it was like three or four, and it was absolutely remarkable absolutely one of the best concerts I ever saw in my life. A legendary show. You made a decision in doing the book to stop at the death of Jerry Garcia. And in some respects, the band continued up until 2015. Why was there no epilogue about those 20 years? Because this is the story we signed up to tell. And the story gets complicated and diverse and yeah, sort of difficult to cover after that because they really went their hard. separate ways. They came back together. You know, it's it's a it's an entirely different There were saga. rivalries. There were business hassles. Yeah. I mean, it's you could do a whole book just on the post-Jerry, the 20 years since Jerry died, and it would be a, a much tawdrier tale, actually. Well, that brings up a question of even during those years, there had to be times when the stories that people told just simply didn't coalesce. Uh, how did you pick and choose which part of the story to tell? We kept it on music as much as possible. Yeah, I, I don't I don't really know what we chose to leave out specifically. I mean, thousands of things are left out. But, uh, yeah, if we had somebody telling a good story, we, we always went for the good yarn. 
And I think we both know enough about what actually happened. I'm putting actually in air quotes there to know sort of who's telling the truth about stuff and who is perhaps not. And, and we stipulated up front that this is not the detailed linear history, that we recommended Dennis McNally's excellent book, A Long Strange Trip, and Blair's excellent book, Garcia and American Life, to get more of the history per se. We wanted to add color and depth to the story. And since everything we did was in first person, we were off the hook for repeating rumors about people's sexual proclivities and all that other stuff that sort of makes lurid but uh, not particularly uh, historically interesting. My perspective is I knew the dead in the early days and then my own musical taste moved away from that. Uh, For me, the fun part about the early part of the book is not so much the Grateful Dead, but what was life was like in Northern California in the early 60s. And that's the part that really drew me. And I'm just wondering, because I see you guys nodding, that it might have been the part that drew you too. Well, we didn't really get that much into it in this book. I mean, when I wrote my Garcia biography, uh, I really got into it deeply, that the whole roots and folk and all. And that was by far the most fun and interesting part of writing that book. Here we made the conscious decision to basically start when the dead start to coalesce in Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. But certainly there's the backdrop of the folk scare, as, as Jerry and others have called it, and all that. And that is interesting. I mean, it's amazing, still amazing, to see what it became sort of through the acid And, and again, there are plenty of books that address that stuff really well. David Brown's wonderful book that was also published in 2015, So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead, has some great stories from the days before the principles met. Um, So, again, that stuff is very well documented. We picked a specific time frame and explored it with as much color and depth as we could. Which you do. And for me, having read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, uh, Prime Green, which is Robert Stone's book, interviewing him about it, too, you get a different perspective. I mean, Stone said that the great days ended after 65. But when I talked to people who lived in San Francisco— 66 was still 66. the summer. Yeah, and what, what what comes out in our book is that almost everybody who is part of the Haight-Ashbury scene regards 65 and 66 as the real summers of love, and the one that became so media-dominated was the beginning of the end. 67 was a very unpleasant time, and all of the bands pretty much decamped for Marin. There's a point in the book where a mention, I don't remember who does it, mentions that... The Killer was a song called San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair, because that (laughs) spread the news, and that was the point where everybody rushed to San Francisco, including the media. People were already on their way, well on their way to San Francisco by the time that came out in, I think it was like the late spring of 67. Uh, But yeah, it didn't help, and it seemed like kind of this uh, flowery pseudo-psychedelic uh, track. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's done by John, people in L.A. Yeah, John Phillips <laughs> of the Mamas and the Papas wrote it, and uh, who's, Scott McKenzie sang it. He was a friend of theirs, I guess. And, uh, yeah, it very much came out of the L.A. Mafia. Also, other a lot of people also trace the um, Look magazine cover as another sort of unwelcome brochure that attracted a shallower crowd to what was a, a pretty profound social experiment before it got diluted and weird. <laughs> Quick question then, for those of us who are in the Bay Area, where was the Fillmore West? It's still a Honda dealership, or it's about to close actually. On it's on Market in Venice. Market in Venice. In fact, I went there uh, 
couple of years ago, uh, and you, if you walk upstairs, which I don't think you're really supposed to actually, but it's, it's, if you walk upstairs, that's where the actual garage part of it is, where the mechanics have cars up on lifts. You can still see the exact shape of the room and the walls and the, 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 the interesting architecture that it has. It's, it's a very cool place. Winterland, where was that? Post, Post. Steiner. And no longer there. Yeah. It's con- <laughs> what's there condos now? now? Condos. I first went to Winterland with my dad when I was a teenager to see oh, um, the Coldstream Guards. And he was my dad was a big fan of British uh, martial music, and so we watched the uh, Royal Guardsmen, you know, doing their drills and stuff, and playing bagpipes in that room. And then later, it became the n- nexus of my psychedelic adulthood. <laughs> Family Dog. Where was that? Well, first Which it was one? the Avalon Ballroom, and I don't remember the address of the Avalon Ballroom, but then it moved out to the Great Highway and was uh, out, out near uh, where the Beach Chalet is now. The original Avalon Ballroom is right where the Regency Two. Ballroom oh, right, is. Right. Wasn't it the Regency Two Theater? Yes, I believe so. It's not the re- People keep going into the Regency Ballroom and thinking that's the old Avalon, but it's not. It's actually right adjacent to that. It's a different different. If I remember, the the Regency Theater 2 had this weird single balcony that, that around it. That would be it. it. That was it? Yeah, yeah. That was it. I never understood how bands could deal with going from smaller venues into these monster <laughs> stadiums. And one thing about This Is All a Dream We Dreamed is we watch, in some respects, the de-evolution of music as it got too popular. And that must have been something that crossed your mind in working on these books. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You, you can see all of the, what's the word I'm looking for, the doubt that the Grateful Dead had about their increasing popularity. I mean, it, it brought nothing with, but problems. I mean, people often talk about kind of the late 80s as this kind of explosion and all that. But it was already happening in the early 70s. They were already too popular and having to like broadcast shows on the radio to keep people from showing up at the shows, people breaking into shows. I mean, and and for them, that's part of what got them to start developing better sound systems was to deal with playing in bigger places, which they were forced into very early on. And it also has to be said that the Grateful Dead adapted their music. They never lock themselves into a particular mode of presentation, they evolved with the size of their venues. And the music that you play for 400 people in a ballroom has to necessarily be different from the music you play for 70,000 people in a stadium. And it took them many years to get from the one to the other. But over time, they, as Blair says, they adapted their hardware and stuff. They also adapted their music. You can't have a conversation with an audience member in a huge place like that because 99% of the people won't know what's going on. But you could interact with audience members in a small place. And musically, your gestures also have to be able to read for people you know, 400 feet away from the stage. And, and it changed the nature of the music in a certain way. But it also, the dead stuck to their guns in a certain way. And as our friend Gary Lambert loves to point out, the Grateful Dead managed to play in every show they did 10 or 15 minutes of extremely weird, outside, purely improvised music for audiences Uh, In the tens of thousands. And, you know, jazz music, the most experimental jazz music, usually takes place in fairly small places. So they they did this sort of revolutionary thing of playing really, really weird music for large crowds and being compensated for it. And one other thing I want to say, the dead built an audience that craved novelty. Unlike almost everybody else in the mainstream music business where you play a new song 
that hasn't been released yet with great trepidation and often to an unwelcoming audience. The Dead had an audience that loved hearing something new. Well, that was also because there was so much improvisation that it was expected, and people went to tons of concerts because they always got something different. Sometimes it was better, sometimes it was worse. That's very clear in the comments made, particularly not just by people in the band, but also by the people around the band. Uh, A few questions concerning, again, the work in the book. As you were going through it and creating this, each of you, what surprised you? What had you forgotten? What came back to you or was new in terms of your work that you didn't know or sense? You know, I'm not sure there are any particularly deep revelations because, again, because Blair and I have been members of this culture and documenters of this culture for decades. It's not like there were a bunch of great surprising revelations, but we did come up with a bunch of very cool stories that we had not heard before. My favorite of them is from Gail Helland, who was a member, a a, a resident of the neighborhood and a teenager who grew up in the hate and was friends with all of the bands and was working for the Grateful Dead when their payroll was about five people. She happened to be the secretary to the dead when Lenny Hart, Mickey's dad, was managing the band. And her story of the day they found out he'd been robbing them is an amazing story with a kicker that I will not spoil for you. Blair, do you have anything there? I'm always impressed uh, by sort of their intelligence and how their basic core values really go from the beginning all the way through the end. Even though a zillion things happen to them, good and bad, they still have this uh, deep integrity, I guess you'd call it. They were always very articulate about what they were doing, even though they're sort of exploring the unexplainable, yet they could explain it uh, musically and in interviews and stuff like that. So I'm always, I was, I'm always impressed by their intelligence. I jotted down a few things that really surprised me. One is that the band was basically broke until the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. They spent a lot of their money on gear and better sound systems. They never had large salaries until until the 80s. Because they paid a lot of their friends and stuff, and they had people on the payroll, some of whom were of marginal value from a, a, <laughs> a cold-hearted <laughs> business perspective, but were um, members of their tribe and stuff. They were more interested in collective welfare than in individual um, uh, superiority. When Vince Wellnick joined the band, he was shocked to discover that there was a salary of $1,000 a day, 365000 a year, and that was it, and that's what they all got. Is that just the band or also some of the other people working there? I'm not sure. The story that came out was that he wondered what his pay was when he took the gig, and they said, well, you get 1000 bucks a day, and he meant, okay, well, how many gigs is that? And they don't know, no, not a thousand bucks a gig, a thousand bucks a day, yeah. plus tour bonuses. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the other. I mean, I would assume that not every employee of Grateful Dead Productions was paid three hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars a year, but everybody who worked for the company got a share of what they call tour bonuses and stuff. The Dead were very, very generous to their workers, and that meant that they lived a little bit, you know, less high, in that sense. I think they were less interested in this. Jerry Garcia was a person who cared not a bit about money. Money for him was something that he could, you know, that enabled him to do what he wanted to do and enabled him to take care of other people. He made deals with his outside musical partners like David Grisman and Merle Saunders that 
are sort of troublesome if you're a bean counter trying to make their archive sell now or make it profitable now, but was just really, really good to the people he was working with because he just didn't care about wealth. Another thing I noticed in reading This Is All a Dream We Dreamed is that they were not happy about their studio albums by and large, and they were very vocal about not being happy with with what was recorded. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually the pattern seemed to be that they would like it when it came out and then they would instantly come to dislike it. Uh, You know, I think (laughs) Jerry's Jerry's famous quote was something like, uh, we don't play well for machines, we play better for human beings. And that was certainly the case, you know, they needed that audience. But I also think that their uh, studio albums are underrated by themselves. Yeah. They, every musician I've ever known, myself included, when you finish a record, you won't say, oh, I could go back and do that better now. So every, everybody feels like they could have done better. But the Grateful Dead made a bunch of really, really good records that endure. And Jerry had just his general self-effacing nature had a, a, a sort of a, a habit of denigrating his own work. How many recordings all told are available now if someone just wanted to go looking? You can get them all for free on archive.org. But there are also a couple of hundred available for sale in the various live concert releases and stuff. Thousands upon thousands. Like if you go on archive.org, you might find a soundboard release, uh, you know, that was recorded by the band. You might find four or five different audience recorded versions of the same show. What I would have liked to have seen in the book, and maybe you might want to consider this, would be a discography of the songs that are mentioned That's inside a whole other the book. book. <laughs> well, just a list, so I could have gone and listened to each well, of them. Well, there wasn't room for it because our manuscript was so huge, and that would have been a whole other chore. But it is an interesting idea to think about all of the songs that are referenced and do them as a playlist. Maybe some enterprising listener will create that playlist for us. This is a very male-centric atmosphere. It seemed as if you worked very hard to create a balance in the book. There were lots and lots of women involved in the story at every phase of the game. They just didn't get as much attention. So we did make it our business to see to it that some of those voices were heard. Mountain Girl, Carolyn Garcia, is, of course, a venerable voice and a marvelous character in her own right, and she's appeared in many of these stories. Some other characters, Betty Cantor Jackson was a member of the Grateful Dead's production team for for years and years and also did not get as much attention as she might have merited, so we interviewed her. The real score was Gail Helland, who I mentioned earlier in the context of having been the secretary to the dead. She had wonderful stories. And Rosie McGee, who was Phil Lesh's girlfriend for many years and, is, and, and continued as a member of the tribe beyond that time, Uh, and recently published her own wonderful memoir called Dancing with the Dead. We knew these people, and Donna Jean Godshow, who was a singer singer in the band, we knew these people, so we wanted to have their voices heard. The tribe, as you call it, was very heterosexual. Was that true or just something that didn't appear in the book? Again, our focus was on music and on the narrative rather than the personalities of the people. John McIntyre was gay, whether he was... Out in that world or not, I don't know. The Grateful Dead scene was largely dominated by the... It was pretty uh, macho. uh, Yeah. The the road crew had a serious machismo (laughs) thing going, and they tended to set the tone for a lot of stuff. For better and worse. What is this relationship 
between musicians and hard drugs. It pops up all through the history of rock and roll. What's going on there? Well, when you're in the entertainment business, and when you're out there showing people a good time, they are enjoying their good time with various adulterants of their choice and stuff. So you're in an atmosphere that is full of people who are partying and people who want to share their good time. The Grateful Dead had a reputation for being one of the coolest party scenes on the planet. Everybody wanted to get into that scene, and one of the ways to get in the door was to have drugs. I will never forget in the early 80s when I walked onto the stage at Red Rocks Amphitheater to say hello to Phil Lesh and was stopped by his roadie, Kid Candelario, who bellowed in my face, Why don't you just give Phil your coke stash and get the mm out of here? Because that was his way of protecting his turf and also because a lot of people did buy their way into that scene with drugs, you know. So every individual is responsible for his own consumption, but it, it that stuff was just coming at you constantly. I, I'd just add to that that, uh, you know, I mean, cocaine, when it came in really heavily in the very early 70s, I mean, that that became a way to sort of – make the touring life more interesting, more, you know, you, you had more energy, you know, all, all those things that people initially believe about what cocaine does for them, you know, that it helps them stay awake on long tours and stuff like that. And then when heroin comes along, and especially in Jerry's case, I mean, I, I've t I, I interviewed a bunch of people for my Garcia book about this very specific subject, and they almost all said that heroin, for whatever its properties are, offered him a sort of relief, uh, a sort of... Uh, uh, a blanket uh, to to sort of cut the intense energy that was focused on him all the time, all the things being asked of him all the time. It was it sort of allowed him to sort of step into a, a, a detached world yeah. uh, to to survive all the craziness around him and to survive all the cocaine that he was imbibing because it yeah. sort of cuts the effects of that a little bit too. I wrote a song about this scene and it has a couplet in it that goes. Uh, I helped him to escape his fame by letting him forget his name. Well, it's also true that being on the road for 80 gigs a year is a pretty tough life. I yeah, mean, that's not sure. easy. Well, it's tougher when you're doing it in a van and you're playing 200 gigs a year. <laughs> Let's not forget that when they were doing those 80 gigs a year, they were often flying on a private plane and staying in very, very nice hotels and being driven around in limos and buses and stuff. So let's not weep too hard for these guys at that <laughs> level and make it 50 million bucks a year doing it, none of which excuses or explains taking drugs that alienate you from your brothers. And that's, uh, you know, the, to me, the, the drugs that, that they took in the early days, marijuana and LSD, were, were drugs that fostered mind expansion and merging of souls into what Phil Lesh characterized as the fingers on a hand. And they um, uh, promoted collaboration. Cocaine does not. Cocaine compartmentalizes you and takes you away from everybody else. And I say this as somebody who was guilty of sitting in the balcony at Winterland high on cocaine while the musicians were on stage high on cocaine playing that music. And I regret it now because it made it hard for me to focus on the music. Well, it also, certainly in Jerry Garcia's case, made him old before his time. Well, that and the fact that his lifestyle, as Dr. Randy Baker put it, was composed entirely of risk factors for heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, cheeseburgers... 
chili dogs, cigarettes, Shakes. no exercise. Yeah. You know, I mean, the guy had terrible personal habits, and even though he was smart enough to understand what he was doing to himself, he was not strong enough to break those habits over time. One other element that doesn't get mentioned, but it is definitely mentioned in This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, and I've heard this about Mick Jagger and certainly Pete Townsend, is the hearing loss after years of being up on that stage. Both Bob Weir and Phil Lesh have major hearing loss. Mick, Mickey Hart has he's, – he's practically deaf, I think, isn't he? I mean he's – and I think it comes with the territory, I guess. It does. Yeah, you're lucky if you don't get it, I guess. I mean, I feel blessed that I have still have really good hearing with all the rock shows I've been to through the years. I once interviewed a member of the Eagles years and years ago about that stuff, and uh, he pointed out that very often the stage is the quietest place in the building because the PA speakers have pointed out into the audience, and you've got to get 20,000 people covered with that. But on stage, you need things to be quieter and more dynamic so you can hear one another play. But the dead the loved dead amplification. Loud, oh, yes, they stage. did. <laughs> uh, the enduring success of the dead. I mean, that's really remarkable. Here is one band that after 50 years is still being listened to by kids. I mean, people sometimes, older people talk about rap music being the new music. But rap has been around as long now as rock and roll was when the Grateful Dead started, if not Way longer, in fact. Yep. What do you think that is? Why do you think the dead, so many years later, still attract audiences of teenagers? The songs, among other things. The dead put together a great songbook. They wrote probably a hundred really excellent songs, and they didn't play them the same way twice in a row. And they did an amazing job of adapting material from a great variety of sources. If you're playing a little country music, a little blues, a little avant-garde, a little jazz, you're going to attract people from all of those cultures too. So they sort of were a, 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 an overlapping point in the Venn diagram of the musical universe, right? So they could pull people in from those and introduce them to other forms of music, and people would just come to them free of context and be attracted to what the Grateful Dead was doing, you know, independent of the, the other influences. And because they could play three shows in a row without repeating one, it encouraged continued and ongoing engagement. And because there was this market of tape trading and stuff, you could get turned on to the Dead and make yourself literate in it before you even got to the show. And because it, it sustained people's interest over time, Bill Graham told me once that, as he saw it, like heavy metal fans, as soon as you become a little older and the hormones aren't raging through your bloodstream, you move on to more sophisticated forms of music, you know, in, in most cases. He said, but Dead fans got into this when they were in college and they stayed with it because the Grateful Dead expanded and developed their music and constantly evolved as a way of keeping themselves and each other engaged. And in so doing, they kept their audience engaged. We wanted to hear what that new song sounded like. And every new song opened up a new area of their harmonic and rhythmic universe, you know, and lyric universe. So they kept expanding their world, and that kept all of us interested over time. And because there's so many thousands of concerts available for free on the Internet— it's easy to turn somebody on to it now. And in my travels, I run into kids who weren't even born yet when Jerry died who are deeply conversant in this music and love it. Were they ever interested? Was Robert Hunter ever interested in, like, doing a, a musical play or anything like he that? He did one. He did one. 
Yeah, about uh, 15 years ago, there's a, a play called Cumberland Blues by Michael Norman Mann that was produced in San Francisco. I actually had the cast of it in here to do a live show during that time when it came oh. out. It has been quiescent for many years. Every once in a while, I hear from Michael about a new production that may be coming, but I haven't heard of one lately. The play does exist, and it was all songs from the Grateful Dead catalog, plus a few new ones written by Hunter and Greg Anton. Is the Grateful Dead film available anywhere? Yeah. Yes. It's out on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah. It's called The Grateful Dead Movie, and there's there's also a... Several other sort of long-form uh, concert videos available as well. There, there's a pretty solid shelf of Grateful Dead on video as well. Uh, in retrospect, by opening up the concerts to recording by anybody, a lot of people were afraid, of course, that that would hurt. It oh, yeah. turned out to do exactly the opposite, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it gave them a, a sense of uh, loyalty, for one thing. Yeah, the record companies were horrified. They couldn't believe that, that somebody would allow this to happen. And a lot of artists looking at them said, no, no taping at my shows. And they, they've almost all come around by now, except for Dylan. But all <laughs> of his shows get recorded anyway. The Grateful Dead tapers really deserve a lot of credit for being the people who made high-quality taping available to the world. And because they, they weren't just deadheads, they went to other shows. They would go to Talking Head shows or Dylan shows or Rolling Stone shows. And uh, that's why we have great tapes of a lot of those people. And it's also true that the Grateful Dead culture, in a way, sort of created the model for grassroots music marketing. Fish, Moe, Leftover Salmon, all these jam bands that followed the dead either consciously or otherwise uh, adopted a lot of the same practices Pearl that Jam. they saw work they, with they the dead. A zillion things. Oh, yeah. One of the guys who's on Pearl Jam's team is a big old deadhead friend of ours, Rob Bleatstein, who, who learned directly from the dead how to do all this stuff. And nowadays, musicians who can't make enough money from records have to go out on the road and play, and they, too, have adopted the Grateful Dead's thing. It, it doesn't behoove you to play the exact same show 30 times on a national tour because you'd like people to maybe buy tickets to two shows. So nowadays, a lot of those bands that used to choreograph every single moment of their show are throwing wild cards in. They're doing theme shows. They're doing all request shows. They're realizing that a genuine, spontaneous live performance is going to be more profitable to them than a carefully programmed repetition. Where are we going with popular music I sometimes ask this question because what we've seen is it's there everywhere. used to be a national music scene of some kind, but it mm -hmm. seems to have, maybe through the Internet, devolved into something else. Like everything else in this culture, 57 channels and nothing on? Or, you know, you, gotta, you have to f seek it out and find it. Find your niche. Great music has always been made, and it's always been available, and it's sometimes been really, really hard to find. The upside of what you're talking about is that music is no longer under the control of a handful of gatekeepers. A guy like me, I'm a working musician. I'm out there playing all year, trying to make a living playing music. And I exist almost entirely outside the music business, and there are many, many more of me than there are of them. You got to be Taylor Swift. You got to tailor it to pop markets. You have to co brand with gigantic corporations and do all kinds of stuff that can make you fabulously wealthy, but it may not make you creatively satisfied. One of the most interesting things that's happening right now is the three members of the Grateful Dead are touring with John Mayer. 
And John Mayer is a guy who made himself a pop star doing whatever pop music is these days, but realized that if he wanted to have a sustained career, he was going to have to deepen himself and expand his musical horizons. And he went to work learning other forms of music. And my partner, Gary Lambert, did a great interview with him in November, and he described this process. And he's out there on the road with the dead guys because he respects their music, loves their songs, and wanted to learn how to play that kind of music. And I think he's doing a really, really good job of it. Bruce Hornsby kind of did that with the dead 20 years ago, too. Right. Yep. Yeah, he's a guy, thing. though, who had experience playing in Grateful Dead cover bands in college and right. that kind of stuff. So, so he sort of came in with a pretty large uh, knowledge set. But uh, yeah, yeah, and he's he has certainly benefited from it as his pop career in quotes uh, has gone down somewhat. He's managed to hold on to a lot of deadheads, and of course, it has expanded into for better and for worse. Yeah, because yeah. Bruce, Bruce is one of those guys who gets a little cranky when people keep hollering out for dead tunes at his shows when he's trying to do something else, and deservedly so. One of the advantages of having been. You know, in the Grateful Dead, I guess, is that people could call out names and it didn't matter if they played it or not because there was always something else. Blair Jackson, what do you have coming up? I don't have any book projects on on the fire at the moment. Uh, My day job is uh, managing editor of Acoustic Guitar Magazine and editor-in-chief of Classical Guitar Magazine, of all things. Uh, And David Gans, other than touring... You have any books on in the works? I do not have any further books in, in the works, but I have a couple of ideas for books, some of which that might surprise you. But right now I'm working a couple of records. I released an album of Grateful Dead songs called It's a Hand-Me-Down and timed it, of course, to coincide with the release of the book. I'm sort of going all in on my Grateful Dead connection at the moment. But because of who I am and my nature, I couldn't just do an album of Grateful Dead songs. I had to assert my originality as well. So along with it, I'm quietly releasing a record called You Are Here, which is a collection of original songs. Uh, And so I'm working both of those. And my plan for the next several months is to tour Uh, as much as possible in support of the book and the records. And you can go to davidgans.com, is that right? Yes, dgans.com also works. And for you, do you have a website? Yeah, I've got a, I've got an out-of-date website. <laughs> I won't even dignify it by giving the, the opinion. Yeah, I know. I found it. <laughs> <laughs> it's BlairJackson.com. It's mostly stuff from about my Garcia book. And mine is like a hand-coded site of vintage 2003 technology, so don't that's look for much innovation or movies there either. Well, that's about, you know, five years ahead of BookWaves.com. <laughs> We're ready to cash in on the big 51st anniversary of the Grateful Dead. (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Blair Jackson and David Gans, whose book is titled, This is All a Dream We Dreamed, An Oral History of the Grateful Dead. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>